Load the plates and lift the weights And we are mates and weights are great And as of late we pontificate About the weights and make a podcast Sumo is cheating This is Weekly Weights with Alex and Will Welcome back everyone to Weekly Weights This is episode 126 My name is Alex Hayes and with me as always is Will Berkman and joining us today, our friend from the internet, it's Mike Tushir. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you have been on the podcast before, and I'd say that your reputation precedes you, but for the people who don't know you, which is Alex and my mothers, respectively, can you just let <laughs> us know who you are, what you do, and what you're doing here? Yeah, um, I'm Mike Tushir. I'm probably best known these days as being a powerlifting coach, which is cool. And uh, I have been coaching really since like 2008 or nine. Well, before that, even in my university team. And uh, I've been coaching people kind of all levels of the sport. I've been fortunate to coach lots of uh, high level, you know, world-class powerlifters. And that's been uh, really awesome as well. Um, Probably claim to to fame is uh, uh, being the guy who popularized RPE training for powerlifting uh, back in like the 2000, yeah, 2008 timeframe. So I was going to say you are kind of thought of as the RPE guy, but more broadly, <laughs> I think a lot of, <laughs> a lot of people would think of you as a bit of an outside of the box thinker, you know, mm-hmm. and that's, that's part of sort of how the genesis of RPE came to be. That's right. a really redundant language, but let's say that. And I guess the first thing we wanted to talk about before we get into the substance of today's discussion is sort of what it's like to be a forward thinker in fitness, because you are broadly very well respected and people do think of you as somebody, like I said, who thinks out of the box. But do you ever worry when you start sharing some of your thoughts publicly, particularly as they're forming about being misinterpreted or then being misappropriated by other people? No, not really. Um, And... So for me, I've never really thought of myself until recently. Uh, I hadn't really thought of myself as an outside-the-box thinker. Like To me, I was just trying to solve problems in my own training and you know, also the training of, of my athletes too. But like where a lot of this started is like from the perspective of an active competitor and now somebody who's been doing this for 24 years or so and uh, I'm trying to eke every last bit of it that I can, you know, uh, never give up. <laughs> but I mean, at that point, it's like, I see problems, you know, in my own training and the training of my lifters and I'm trying trying to solve it. Um, and I do a reasonable job of leaving some stuff close to the vest. Um, I, it probably seems like I'm, uh, publishing lots of thoughts that, you know, are, are not talked about a lot, but I've got even more (laughs) that I don't. And and, I mean, to be fair, there's a good reason for that. Like in what you're probably uh, getting at a little bit is that sometimes those thoughts are not good thoughts, you know, and uh, they'll turn out to be wrong or, or inaccurate in some serious way. Uh, The RTS coaching staff gets to cope with a lot of that stuff. So I guess for me, one of my issues has always been I like I'll often spend a lot longer in developing thoughts than I'll even necessarily 
stick to that opinion once I've gotten to yeah. it, if you know what I mean. And so totally. if I if I share too much of my own thinking publicly, I feel like sometimes I'm going to get nailed to a position that yeah. I don't even hold almost by the time that anybody's heard of it. And yeah. then possibly like my practices have moved on, but people who want to talk to me feel that I'm represented by something that no longer actually says anything about what I think, you know? That's, you know, that's a tough thing about the internet age, I think. I, I, that resonates with me too. Um, you know, or, or that uh, maybe a characterization, uh, caricature of that idea or something like that. You know, the example that comes to mind for me, and this is really instructive in my own like personal development is probably around the 2013 timeframe. Uh, I published an article uh, called why speed work doesn't work. And this was like kind of in the beginning stages of when like raw powerlifting was pretty clearly established at that point. And training wise, it was preceding this sort of backlash against Westside, which was, had been hugely popular in the early 2000s, right? So I published this article, the title is Why Speedwork Doesn't Work. That's not a really accurate summary of what the article's about, but, you know, the internet's the internet. Bite. Right. And, and the thing that was instructive to me is like almost as soon as that comes out, I it wasn't even the arguments. It was my own coaching practice. I start seeing uh, examples of cases where it's like, well, this may not be a tool you always reach for, but here's a case where it might be useful and there's a case where it might be useful. So maybe I don't really even think the thing that, that I, that I just thought that I thought try that one on for size. <laughs> yeah. Well, interestingly, that article was actually part of the recommended reading for my mentorship um, for the lectures about intensity, because mm. I think some of the things that you said about, you know, the profile of speed and its relationship to total force production mm -hmm. is really important. Yeah. But that article was put alongside a few others that also gave gave sort of a lot of credence to the idea of undulation and creating contrast in relative training stress and speed and so on in general as well. And so probably some people came out of it more confused than they went in. But if it prompts them to think and reevaluate their ideas and why why certain practices might have utility for reasons other than what they thought, it still might have value, yeah. you know? Absolutely. And that's, that's kind of where I've landed in the last, I don't know, uh, five, six years, I guess, training wise, it's okay as a coach to be confused. You know, it's okay to, to feel like you don't have the answers. What you want is a roadmap more than anything else so that, okay, I don't have the answer and I don't really know why this happened, but I know that here's some good places to go next. And, you know, this increases our probability of success. Uh, of course, you want to figure out why you want to answer those questions, but it's difficult. Like that's a really difficult question. And you see people like that's the whole field of exercise science is dedicated to untangling some of those questions and people spend careers doing it. You know, it's, it's not reasonable to think that we're going to have all the answers. So I think it's more important to know what to do when you don't have the answer. Well, that's an incredibly good, maybe unintentional segue towards the topic <laughs> that, we, that we really want to cover today. So Alex and I had the privilege of, of a video that you sent us that was 10 or 15 minutes long walking us, through, <laughs> yeah. walking us through some of the new systems or systems that you've been playing around with for auto-regulating training. Um, that was the TRAC system, 
but I presume with a few extra bells and whistles that you're playing with for yourself. Mm. Um, and that was that's built off some of the ideas around um, RPE, which you popularized. And so RPE in general, um, correct me if I'm wrong, sort of began as a concept where you just wanted to conceptualize relative difficulty of sets. So if people were saying, let's keep one rep in the tank, you said, well, why not occasionally keep two or three? And is there a way that we can communicate that relative effort in training? But as, perfect, as the application of RPE broadened, I think a lot of people realized that RPE is a really good kind of simplistic tool for us to capture ideas of internal loading. So like the amount of stress that an athlete is experiencing in a training session, even though as a measure, it seems kind of crude just to ask people, you know, one to 10, how was that? Um, And this new system that you're using seems to add a whole lot of complexity onto that. So I guess the first question is, what is the TRAC system and what prompted you to move towards it? So let me uh, begin my explanation by saying this is very much an experimental program. Um, It's also an experimental program I've been working on for like a decade or more. Um, It's kind of where I always thought training should go, but I've taken several stabs at at a a truly auto-regulated program before, and they've fallen short in some way, and I've ended up moving on from them. Uh, This would be the first one that uh, has been effective enough that I stick with it and uh, feel confident enough to export it to my athletes. But it's still an experimental program, and we still have growing pains with it. But uh, to give a little background on what it's about, um, I've, I've been thinking about this for a while, and we there's probably some underlying philosophy that needs to start, and it's, it's fairly simple. It's just some programs are better than others, you know. And there is, if some programs are better than others, then hypothetically there should be a best program, and if. Now there's where we start to lose people. It's not that there is a program that you write on paper that is the best for everybody or even one person, right? The more seriously we take this, the more we realize, okay, there's a bunch of problems of prediction and things like that. Maybe the best program is something that uh, responds, you know, that adapts to our changing uh, biology or, or that uh, uh, adapts to unexpected uh, results, um, different things like that. Uh, and so I, I suppose that's kind of the underlying idea is an adaptive program is probably getting closest to what would be the best program. So, uh, probably around 2018, 2019, I was kind of losing my mind around fatigue uh, you can ask the, the rest of the guys on the, the team. Uh, we have, we, you know, we use Slack uh, for internal communications and uh, we have a, a channel on there for training tactics. And I would post these like long, like rambling, <laughs> like written things that I, where I was just kind of thinking about fatigue and like, really, what does it mean? Because um, like we're kind of going through this period uh, in in exercise science, especially where it's like, oh, well, fatigue doesn't really mean anything. It's this unwanted byproduct. And it's like, well, is that really true? Is 
does it mean nothing or does it mean something and it's just a, a different thing than we thought it meant? Uh, you know, anyway. So where I finally ended up is probably not all that much of an epiphany. Uh, where I finally end up is something like this. You want to increase your workload over time to the extent that you're able to recover from it. Um, and it's probably a little bit more nuanced than that. There's probably some workload that you can recover from that's just not uh, all that adaptive. You know, it's uh, uh, how do you put into practice like concepts like maximum adaptive volume, maximum recoverable volume, and things like that. Uh, also, like since I'm coaching mostly in an online setting, how do you make this system responsive enough to the athlete? You know, that you know you have people training all over the world at all different time zones. You can't sit at your computer constantly and just wait for them to check in with you. Hey, I'm feeling okay today. What's my training? And then you just tell them what the training is for today. Like you just can't do that. And I wouldn't trust myself to do that anyway. You know, so there needs to be some sort of systematic way of doing it. And so I banged on that problem for a few years <laughs> and kind of where I end up is, is something where like similar to what I showed you guys. Uh, we start with a subjective questionnaire, you know, how are you feeling soreness, stiffness, uh, what's your energy like, how do you, how fatigued do you feel, you know, and, uh, what's your motivation to train mood, stress levels, stuff like that. And so we take that data and, try to aggregate it across several different time periods. And also we're looking at training data because I don't think you can just rely on fatigue and you also can't just rely on training data. Um, you know, the acute to chronic work ratio stuff has kind of gotten a lot of flack lately about it not actually being predictive of injury, blah, blah, blah. And I'm pretty disinterested in that. Like to me, it's just a good training idea to increase your workload gradually compared to what you're used to. And it communicates this idea. Um, but then you run into this definitions problem, like what's, what's acute and what's chronic, you know, like a lot of what we see in literature is acute as one week, chronic is four weeks, but how come acute can't be three days or a month, you know, and then compare it to something similar, uh, in the, the chronic timeframe. So, and I think all of those are valid. So you should probably look at lots of different timeframes. So then now you've got a lot of stuff, you know, just dumped a lot of different numbers on the table. So how do you sort through all that? And I think looking at things across uh, uh, several different times, time scales, looking at actual training and then looking at, you know, what's the subjective response to training. I think that's a pretty good place to start. So, have you read the book Thinking Fast and Slow? Parts of it. And I've read several like derivative, you know, psychology has like Thinking Fast and Slow is like the first one. And then there's like several other books that come after it that all reference that book. So Yeah. And in six or eight years, there'll be like a children's book that communicates the clear message. Like, <laughs> exactly. like you know, the little train that could for the message of grid or whatever. Like if yeah. you just stick to it, you can, yeah. <laughs> um, no, the reason I ask, um, reason I ask is I remember reading it and it was one of those interesting books where it, it highlighted to me a whole bunch of things in my way of thinking. 
that I kind of acknowledged about myself but hadn't thought of the implications of. And one of the themes that comes through in it in a few places is that like heuristics can be really useful because sometimes when we attempt to approximate the complexity of a system in our decision-making, we end up just making more mistakes um, because we make too many decisions. And so processes that allow us to reduce decisions help. And one of the big appeals to me about about very simple RPE-based prescriptions is it cuts out a lot of my potential to mess up as a coach when I go Mm -hmm. in and try and tinker with everything. And I actually, when we sent you this email, I wrote in an anecdote where I have a I have a sort of more generic template-based programming group where I still do individualized things, but it's all individualized within a lot of constraints. So the number of decisions I make in programming is much less for them than my one-to-one clients. And I remember looking over the course of a year and seeing that for the most part, they had actually done much better. And even though the programs between the two groups on average look similar, because those templates are built off of what worked for everybody, the number of decisions I made in changing them were fewer and it seems that I made good decisions as a result. And maybe that just means that I suck as a coach and my one-to-one client decisions are bad. I don't know. But when I when I was first looking at this system from you, the first question that came to my mind is, given all the complexity of what you said and how difficult it must be to approximate all of those considerations, why did you choose to go more towards complexity and granularity in those decisions as opposed to less? I'm not sure that, I mean, you're, you're really looking under the hood of a car, you know, and I think that we could layer a skin on top and it would uh, um, be much more appealing. And on some level, lots of, lots of places do this, right? And uh, there's some examples in our own industry, uh, but more than that, there's examples outside of, of our industry. So, uh, for instance, my brother is a, um, a web developer, and uh, he used to work for a major uh, a major medical company. And uh, they acquired a company whose specialty was in developing AI systems. And uh, their AI system was supposed to do all this magical stuff, but it didn't work a lot of times. So they built this backup algorithm. So when the AI system failed, it would just run the algorithm. And if you think about it, then that's, why not just run the algorithm, you know? And I think lots of things end up like that. You know, you just put a skin on it, call it AI and we're good, you know? Um, so we're a little bit looking under the hood. The, the thing that I want to be able to do is to trace back every decision that gets made. Uh, it's important for me to be able to trust the system that I'm using, that I'm having my clients use. And that was a big problem in prior iterations of this system. And like I mentioned, I would abandon them um, because I would come up on a workout and they would say, hey, reduce your volume by half. And I would say, what? I'm not doing that. And so, I mean, at that point, you may as well not be listening to it at all. So I thought I need to develop a system that when it tells me to reduce the volume by half, I know why it's telling me to do that. And I'm confident enough in that, that I go, even though I don't want to, I'll, I'll do what I'm told. And so that's we, kind of what led me to the spot where I'm at now, you know? So, so the difference between the prior iterations of this system and the, and the current one that you're still working on, was that just 
collecting more data and creating, you know, more data points? Is that, is that how that came to, to be? No, I would say it's about the flexibility of the system. So I actually find this system somewhat difficult to talk about generally because there's so many variables, right? So for instance, let me, let's say that we plan to do a workout uh, and you're going to do five working sets and uh, we come up to that workout and your fatigue is high. Well, should we reduce the workout? Like, should we reduce the volume or not? Well, it depends on how high the fatigue is. If it's just a little bit high, maybe we just go ahead with it. But if it's a lot high, maybe we should reduce reduce the volume. Well, how much do you reduce the volume by? It, well, it kind of depends on how high the fatigue is. And you see, like, you get to a lot of these little decisions uh, and they're threshold problems. Like, where do you draw the line here? And it didn't feel right to, like, hard code any of that in there. So I have tons and tons of these settings, which is a double-edged sword. And this is kind of what you're getting at, Will, is lots of these little decisions, uh, which I hope that we get better at with time and practice, you know, and I think we have gotten a lot better at it with time and practice. Um, But the, the variables themselves need to be a little bit flexible. Like if you go to the website now, there's a subjective questionnaire track that you can fill out. And we still have clients do that because it it does tell us subjectively how they're feeling, but we don't currently do anything like automatic with that information. Um, Part of the reason is the analysis of it. You know, if it's just saying your soreness is a three and your tiredness is a three and all these other data points, and we're going to measure that up against this fixed benchmark. Well, that's not that's not terribly useful because for you, you might rate where you're at normally as a three, whereas me, I might rate where I'm normally at as a five. You know, and there's just, we find that there's just these little differences between people. So it's got to be a flexible uh, measuring stick to some extent. And so that was a big thing is like building in that sort of uh, a system that the language I'm looking, I'm trying to avoid, I think is a system that learns like what. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess in a way it does, it is learning what is normal for you. Um, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that language just because that's also kind of what a lot of uh, AI brands pitch and uh, this is definitely not an AI system, you know. So, well, given that it's not an AI system and, you know, you do advertise yourself as a coach and not an Excel wizard, <laughs> I guess <laughs> I guess the next the next logical question is what role does a coach play in these more data-driven paradigms? Well, just simply from a programming standpoint, there's still lots of programming decisions that need to get made. And I was just talking to uh, John, one of our other coaches about this. Um, The programs are actually a lot harder to write. I don't know why I keep doing this, but like every iteration of training that I come up with makes the programs a lot more difficult. It seems like 
they're not. It seems like they're easier to write or they're, they're less decisions, but it just doesn't seem to be that way in, in practice. Um, it gives you some capabilities, right? So now I can say, I could plan a workout that's maybe a one RM test, but I can tell the system to only give you that workout in certain conditions. So only when you're feeling very recovered and the training loads have been, uh, you know, just so, uh, so you could say that, you know, things just happen to go along so that you've more or less spontaneously tapered, uh, at some point. Well, maybe that's a good day for a, for a one RM test. And we'll just kind of check in and see where things are at. But if those conditions aren't met, then you will never see that workout, you know, and you can do lots of stuff like that. Well, if training skews too heavy or too light, then, uh, throw this workout, uh, to kind of bring things back in line. If they're feeling particularly beat up, then we can have a, a light BFR session. Um, you know, so it gives you a lot of flexibility, uh, without having to really without having to be there in person, like manually coaching every session, but also, you know, one advantage systems have in that situation is that they're repeatable. They don't get tired. They don't, uh, forget, you know, so even if you're there coaching in session, you know, if there's a, a miscommunication between you and the athlete, or you don't, you're not quite paying attention the way that you should be, uh, then you miss that cue and miss that opportunity. But that it's not eliminated with a with a system like this, but I would say it's it's a different risk profile. Have you found that having in those kind of carrot dangling sessions, like the one RM test that you um, mm-hmm. the example that you gave, have you found that that like gamifies recovery for your athletes? Like, are they more likely to get to bed earlier, like on a frequent basis, more likely to eat, hit their protein, all those kind of things? Do you find that, like that that's happened? Not, not really. In if I'm being totally honest, if anything, uh, it can skew the other way. So some cautionary tales, I suppose. Uh, like I said, this has definitely been an experimental program. I've had lifters who will tell me that they're not motivated to do the other outside the gym things because. Uh, they know that if they don't do it, the system will take care of them. And that feels like a cop-out to me. I'm just not terribly persuaded by that. Like, I don't think that, you know, if you don't do those things, then you haven't earned the session. And if you don't do those things, then you shouldn't do the session anyway. You know, that, that this, a session that you're unprepared for is a session that you're unprepared for. And, yeah, I mean the system should take care of you. It's like if I don't if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, then I need you to hurt me. No, I'm not here for that. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, it's intellectually immediately unappealing to think that you would get equivalently good results by being a shit trainee just because yeah. the system looks after you. It's it's more that you might do the best that you can do given those constraints. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Um the other thing I'm interested in, so obviously that's people who are less motivated to work hard. Do you ever find that just when somebody goes through the process of filling in one of those questionnaires or something, that their expectations of their performance within session might regress to the lower level when they say, oh, actually, I am a little bit tired, as opposed to toughing it out and doing their very best? 
I've once again, I, I didn't realize how counter uh, counterintuitive some of these results were until starting to talk to you guys about it. But uh, I've had an issue of people budging the numbers a little bit uh, on the recovery side to try to get the workout that they wanted to get. Um, and that's particularly an issue like as, as outside stressors creep up. Right. But again, like that's something to be uh, cautioned against. Uh, it's something we've got to be intentional about not, not letting what we want to be true influence what is actually true uh, to the to the best of our ability. You know, a robust system should be able to endure some of those shocks, and I think this can. Um, but if you're just like outright just saying whatever you need to do, need to say to get the workout that you want, then okay, then we're not really doing this system. You know, and and there's a lot of these features that can be turned down or turned off. You know, like I said, we could draw the line uh, for adjustments due to fatigue at some other place or turn it off entirely. Um, And that's something that I've had to learn as a coach, as somebody who's writing this training uh, is that um, I've got to be more willing to turn some of that stuff off when the athlete is not prepared for for the prepared for the feature, I guess you could say. Um, well, I mean, what you said there is also just one of the classic criticisms of RPE, like the meme about your client doing an RPE eight that's always an RPE ten. Sure, has like has an element of truth to it for the clients who are that way inclined, and there's plenty of them. Yeah. You know, but I guess part of the coaching process as well is beginning to make your clients understand the longer term implications of frequently not doing the training as intended. Right. And so on. And so even when well, you have it, oh, you go on. We've got to meet our clients where they're at too, you know, and the RPE example is probably easier to wrap our heads around. You know, if we've got a client and I've, I work with them frequently who really aren't that reliable with RPE, we need to find some other way to administer the training load. And that may be percentages and, uh, you know, like I've, like I wrote a book about why we should use RPE over percentages to a large extent, but that doesn't mean that there aren't situations where the cost benefit works out the other way, you know, and if giving uh, somebody an RPE program leads to them doing things that are not in their best interest, then we've got to find a different tool, whether that's velocity or percentages or whatever. Uh, And this track R tool is no different either. You know, if somebody can't handle the, you know, uh, the rating of, of their recovery or that causes them to be stressed out, then maybe we need to turn some of that stuff down, make it less sensitive or turn it off entirely, uh, figure out, you know, is there utility in using the system to begin with? Do you think that um, while we're th- thinking about sort of the coaching, the coaching element of this, do you think that your intuitions still add a lot of value to a system like this like i presume somewhere you still have to make decisions about what exercises we will do you know if we're trying to put in a certain type of workout how that workout will look and things like that like how do you meld those more like experiential harder to harder to entirely communicate elements of your knowledge 
with this much more algorithmic component? I think that there's a good, a good blend of that. Um, and I've had to, to learn kind of how to harness some of that stuff because ended up building some of these capabilities and then was like, yeah, that'd be really cool. Like the, the, uh, you know, uh, impromptu max out session, you know, that just was a capability that I was like, oh yeah, we could do that. Okay. Now I've got to figure out, is that appropriate? You know, cause this is a problem that I've not really thought about a lot because it's not really been a possibility before. Um, and there's plenty of things like that. And when you start thinking about, okay, this person's training three days a week versus that person's training four days a week. How do you want these rules to be structured? And what does that mean? Like writing the training has been difficult. Um, And we're, that's probably the next problem to work on is how do I, how do I fix that? Basically, (laughs) how do I make it so that it's easier to, to wrap my head around uh, some of the training variables? There's something that occurs to me thinking about this, which is that the more we try and automate some of those less like quantifiable decisions. So say the decision as to whether to do a paused squat or a pin squat, which are, Mm -hmm. you know, subjectively quite similar exercises in lots of ways, but elements of how it feels to an athlete and maybe their like familiarity with the movement and the degree to which they like it and whether it's novel and all of those things kind of feed in meaningfully to their training experience, but in a way that I don't know that I could ever represent in an algorithm accurately. Right. And, that's, and I don't even have a question to that. It's just, it's in my head as you speak. I don't know how I no, would deal with that. You're, you're right on. And I mean, I haven't figured that out either. Um, and I don't know that we'll get to a, a reliable place to figure that out. That's just something that doesn't seem to me like it's ready to yield to to numbers just yet. Um, things like how heavy we should go and how much volume which should we do, those are uh, much easier to, to quantify and then you can make decisions that way. But, you know, I suppose the less quantifiable stuff is still, you know, coaches, you know, coaches input. Uh, how long should the block be? Well, I mean, I guess that's numeric, but still, you know, that's not something that's, uh, you know, algorithmically determined. Uh, the block sequence, you know, should we uh, do a, you know, more hypertrophy oriented prep phase or uh, something with a little more intensity or somewhere in between, um, you know, your overall structure, uh, the exercises that you're doing, you know, lots of that stuff, or even like the distribution of intensities, you know, so say you're, you've chosen to do a block that's like a mid-level intensity. Well, does that mean you want all the work to be fairly mid-level intensity or do you want some really heavy and some really light so it balances out? Well, I mean, those are still coaching decisions. Uh, And I mean, to that end, I feel like the emerging strategies process uh, to reference another conversation, I guess, gave a lot of insight, gives a lot of insight on making some of those decisions. Hey, we tend to have a better response when we do X versus Y. Um, I see this as an extension of that process rather than a replacement for it. Like the emerging strategies process is 
like kind of a like a level one understanding of it is like what happens if we keep certain variables constant and just see what happens due to performance well those variables that we keep constant are like exercises uh, sets reps and rpe so the weight fluctuates a little bit and so we use that to measure performance this system is almost like what happens if we keep other things constant what if we keep you know more constant uh, exert more control over your recovery level and the overall intensity and the overall uh, like training load uh, and you know see what happens then you know so it's holding different things constant i guess so mike you mentioned when you talk about emerging strategies one of the greatest strengths of it is that you reduce the noise in the system yeah. so you can find out you know essentially what is working and what what you want to keep in the program i guess with something like this would would this not increase the amount of noise in the system and how do you kind of you think about that concept I guess it'll increase the noise in some dimensions, but reduce it in others. So you may get a more consistent, uh, like internal training load, you know, that uh, your, um, you know, if your soreness spikes or something like that, then uh, the program will adapt to control that. Whereas in like a more traditional emerging strategy setup, it won't. So some variables are going to be uh, less noisy and then other variables will be more noisy. So I suppose it depends on what we think are the most important variables again. So I heard you give a talk that was about an hour long on something that I'm going to ask you to sort of breeze over here. So I'm sorry, this might be a difficult question, but Within the system that you showed us, you you had some ways of visualizing different kinds of fatigue that you sort of delineated between central and peripheral. And I guess firstly giving a brief sketch of how you how you split those two. Have you found that similar training stressors generate similar types of fatigue from client to client? So I suppose let's think about, feel free to steer me if I'm going in the wrong direction here. But my, no, it's all right. That's probably my hardest ever <laughs> podcast question. So you know, that's, a, that's a mark of respect. I'm sorry, go on. No, no, it's no problem. But I think, so central peripheral, what do I mean by that? Um, peripheral fatigue feels more like soreness, stiffness, things happening kind of uh, in a specific peripheral location of the body. Uh, Central fatigue, I don't mean like central nervous system fatigue, I mean like the general rundown feeling that you get, like this whole body sort of brain fog kind of feeling. Um, That's what central fatigue tends to feel like. Um, You know, depressions in, in mood or training enthusiasm, that would all be you know, central. So, um, I tend to associate higher intensities with more central fatigue and tend to associate lower intensities with more peripheral fatigue. And I think that's 
fairly generalizable. Um, it probably depends on how fine a gradient do we want to draw. Um, but I think generally something lower intensity and equivalent you know, training load is going to draw more uh, peripheral soreness and stiffness versus, you know, heavy 1RMs. Uh, heavy 1RMs may kind of make you feel more of that central fatigue type of feeling. And there are certainly differences, you know, everyone's pulled a third attempt deadlift that left them feeling peripherally wrecked for a couple of days. Um, so it's definitely not exclusive. Sure. Um, I mean, I tend to drop my third attempt deadlifts early enough in the rep that I'm normally just about fine by the next day, unfortunately. Yeah, hey, that's smart. You know, go back to training. <laughs> well, I, the following, the follow-up question to that is if the responses are kind of uniform in terms of the subjective training stresses, mm -hmm. do you find that some people still perform better with higher or lower levels of central and peripheral fatigue within their block? Yeah, for sure. For sure. We've had several people who, uh, uh, several people who seem to respond better when the overall intensity is lower, uh, which would mean that the volume is higher. And then other people, like I tend to be more on the other end of that spectrum. Uh, I tend to respond more to higher intensities and, and so on. Um, so, and I mean, I think it, it kind of connects into what you mentioned earlier uh, with your internship, that variability is a big deal too. Because I think the first step is figuring out which one do you tend to respond better to. And then the second step is, okay, how do you make that response more robust, more reliable? Um, I think it's a pitfall to write training that is too much the same. You know, each block, yeah, it's a little bit different exercises. It's a little bit different rep range, but it's still pretty much the same, you know, small differences here and there. After, you know, multiple blocks, yeah, the response gets blunted and you'll need to do something significantly different, I think, uh, to kind of get things moving again. So another element of this, um, of this spreadsheet that you showed us was that downstream sessions and sometimes downstream weeks would be adjusted on the basis of the changes that you had to make to the to a session within a day and i think i think sort of some of the common wisdom among coaches would be to treat each session as a drop in the bucket and if you need to sort yeah. of just make a little tweak to today you just get back on the horse tomorrow and carry on yeah. um what kind of led to your thinking there that you want to be able to broadly maintain the average workload or average stress over time, as opposed to just letting one day be one day. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose I never quite really bought that, you know, that I think that that was the best decision given the tools that were available. Uh, I can't remember everything that I showed you guys in the, in the video, but the number of calculations that I'm making to, to figure out what we should do today is not something that I would ever want to do by hand for, for even one athlete, <laughs> you know, but it's just it, the risk of committing a, just some mathematical error is, you know, and then figuring that out is not fun. That's not how you want to spend your coaching time. So I think it just kind of becomes the best 
decision that that's available is just like, well, let's just get back on it and just proceed from here. And in the end, it'll more or less average out. But does it really average out? Like if I think about like what's going on in a body and what's going on, like as training effects accumulate, I don't, I mean, yeah, it could average out, but it's also like we were talking about memes and there being a bit of truth to memes. What about the the meme of people who skip their assistance work? You know, you write the program and it's got this assistance work that's built in and uh, presumably because you want there to be a training effect from it. But if they never do it, then what? You know, they're basically doing all the heavy stuff, but skipping the light stuff. And so it skews the intensity and it skews the overall effect of that of that training block. But if you knew that, at some point you would say, look, this whole thing is not going the way that I wanted it to. We need the intent is for this to be lower intensity block with more volume. And we're just not getting that. So maybe we need to do this workout over here that has no heavy component at all and is just rep work to kind of bring things back in line. You know, and the, the more we can steer things like that, uh, the better off I think you've got the potential to be. I mean, if you imagine a scenario of, of a lifter who is consistent and adherent, then yeah, like a dynamic adapting system, it may not add a whole lot. You know, they're they're a reliable uh, factor. But uh, one of my favorite examples uh, is I've got uh, one of my clients is an ER doctor, so works ridiculous hours, ridiculous shifts, and then we'll have long shifts, long stretches of like time off. And uh, this has been really useful for him because when he's fatigued, it gets down regulated. If he has to cut a session short or do like three or four sessions in a row, then all that stuff gets accounted for uh, without, you know, without us just kind of going, eh, I bet it'll balance out. You know, I can be a lot more confident that we're getting what we intend to get. Yeah. I mean, I think my, my presumptions about it probably doesn't matter so much about what you do within the day, provided that the long-term works out the same kind of comes from observing people who have always operated under that assumption. And even Mm -hmm. where it's done in research, like I know there's a couple of studies on daily undulating periodization where they've let people self-select the order in which they do workouts. And at the end of the block, they all tend to roughly get about the same results. Um, there was one by Cole Cohorn that was exactly like that. But they also, they didn't actually have that much scope to change the workouts that they did. And most of them ended up doing things in close enough to the same order that maybe you can't really fairly draw that inference. But it's but it's just been, like you said, a very easy way to operate. I guess the other thing that feeds into it though um, is that when I write programs, I often think about priority sessions you know Mm -hmm. i have my my heavy squat session my heavy bench my heavy deadlift session and i like to adjust things within the week so that those sessions we perform well um and i i think that makes decision making around other things a little bit easier Mm -hmm. but hearing you talk now i sometimes think well maybe that runs the risk of of diluting the overall training effect this sort of like average lump of everything we do just to keep those pulses happening um, how do you, I don't know if you even balance those ideas, but how do you think about that? I mean, it doesn't have to, I don't think it has to, it, you, 
you certainly could kind of run the risk of like uh, muting the rest of training so that our key sessions are good performances, but it doesn't have to be that way. And there's a lot of psychology that can very easily run counter to what I'm trying to do with this. And that's kind of what I was alluding to in, in a way of uh, needing to be willing to turn some of this stuff off, you know, and uh, some of these dynamic adjusting features, like sometimes it would be better if we just didn't do that. Uh, and key sessions are, are an example of that. Um, one of the features is that the workout itself is going to uh, fluctuate, you know, and it's not fluctuating for no reason. There's a, definitely a reason. And if you understand that, then sometimes that's good enough. But for some people, it's not. Some people like, look, I squat heavy on Monday. And if you take that away, then, I mean, it's there, it's right there in the language. Take it away. You know, they feel like they've lost something. And now that heavy squat session pops up on a Tuesday. Now you're just turning my world upside down. You know, like they're not mentally prepared for it. Well, we can turn that stuff off and make it so that, okay, Monday will definitely be the heavy squat session. And we're just going to adjust the rest of the week to compensate. And I think that's, that's a fair compromise, you know? So, so Mike, you mentioned that, um, there's inbuilt fluctuations on a workout to workout basis. How much do they differ? Is there like a sort of a range that they stick in or is, is that dependent on the, the data that you're getting? It's definitely dependent. Um, I've had, I've had some instances where the variability is quite a lot. Uh, and sometimes athletes are okay with that. And sometimes it's been beneficial. Like I've had people message me at times and say, Hey, you know, I didn't agree with this decision at the time. Uh, but I did what I was told and now I'm, I feel like I'm much better for it. That's the other thing is that I think we can kind of get trapped in to focusing really hard on one session. Like this session that I'm about to do is the most important. And that one, I mean, we should, we should do what we can to make it optimal to the extent that we're able to, but we should also have in mind future sessions, you know, and if we do a session now, uh, but it costs us next week, then that may not be a trade that's worth it. You know, I got off track on your question, Alex. Sorry. Feel free to. I, mean, um, to I, I just asked how much variability there was on a session to session basis. Yeah, there can be a lot. Uh, but again, if the athlete's not coping with that, uh, then we need to turn that down. And even, even to the point of turning it off entirely, um, I would say what's normal to expect. If we're recovering well, I would expect that the workloads will shift a little bit. Um, you know, last the last session you did slightly more, you did an extra set or something like that versus, uh, you know, and, and lots of times this will be due to overshooting an RPE or just some mathematical uh, rounding thing you know so 
your stress was a little bit high in the last session. So this session gets bumped down slightly. Most of the time, it's not terribly obvious, you know, and if you're recovering well, that should be most of what you notice. Um, but then as you start to push the boundaries a little bit and the workloads get toward, you know, your, your limit of recovery, then we'll see things pop up like, uh, um, impromptu deloads and things like that, where you were pushing the training volume really hard and now your recovery has dropped to the point where, uh, it's reducing your stress aim point. And, and I know a lot of this probably isn't making a whole ton of sense, but the upshot of that is that now uh, your workloads for the rest of this week get reduced significantly. You've got a, you've got basically a deload week that pops up out of nowhere. You weren't necessarily expecting it, but it's been driven by uh, your recovery. So I kind of want to ask a couple of more meta questions about coaching. You've been doing this now for like, 15 years um, and you're obviously thinking about it more than the average person, which, <laughs> which I imagine weighs on you here and there. Yeah. Um, given how much thought you put into these sort of bigger questions about like how can we more truly represent optimal training and stuff, do you ever find yourself becoming disinterested in or even like disregarding a little bit some of the elements of training that you consider maybe more mundane? Do you have an example of what might be mundane? Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe like the minutia of someone's squat technique or something like that. Maybe, I suppose you could say that I've been, uh, uh, I've had some people who think that, uh, that, you know, that, uh, I think there's good reason to not, you know, be hypercritical of, just keying on the, the example you gave here, but uh, maybe squat technique. Um, I don't feel the need to like, coach every rep and uh, like really, oh, your knee buckled in two millimeters. Like I, I, I think that most of these things wash out, you know. Get back and, to the broomstick. And, and they're not. <laughs> back to the broomstick, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Like it's not even just that they wash out because like you could say the same thing about you know, what I'm, you know, people do say the same thing about programming changes too, right? Like, oh, it's minor shift, it'll wash out, right? But I think that it can be counterproductive to overcoach some of some of that stuff. And I mean, there may be some, there may be some uh, valid criticism in there as well that, uh, yeah, it'll wash out, it'll correct, but it doesn't do that necessarily automatically on its own. It does that because you notice it. And even if, so what happens in my own practice, in my own training, is that I notice those things and I correct for them. And I just don't make a big deal out of it. You know, like I don't feel the need to, you know, get out the coach's eye app and, you know, draw a bunch of stuff. Like, okay, yeah, I noticed that, that squad, I cut it a little bit high. I need to bring it down the next set. And, and I think that for intermediate athletes or, or anywhere in there, really, we shouldn't assume that they already understand all that stuff. Uh, that 
making a correction without making a big deal out of it is a little bit of an art in itself. I mean, I broadly agree. Like, you know, over time I've, I've probably worried less about talking people through their technique and worried mm-hmm. more about giving them some broad feedback and then tweaking my program to give them chances to learn and improve. But one of the re- Oh, you go on. You had something to say. Yeah. I was just thinking like, as this relates back to track R and, uh, the differences between being hyper, like if you were going to be hyper attentive to one thing, would you pick technique or would you pick training loads? And I would pick training loads for sure. That I think that being hyper attentive to training loads is going to give us a better chance at, you know, reducing, avoiding injuries at uh, giving somebody a, a workload that's adaptive and, you know, the rest of the stuff can kind of work itself out you guys find yourself more or less on the same side of that or i am it's interesting we um alex and i recorded an episode last week where i was finding it very hard to express some of my thoughts recently because i feel like i've learned more about movement and posture and biomechanics and things in the last year and in some ways i've wanted to apply it but i've also wanted to really not get too caught up on it when it comes at the expense of productive training And so again, it comes back to that sort of balancing, providing people appropriate stressors, altering their programs. So you give them chances for that more implicit motor learning um, whilst still satisfying those things and not getting so caught up in, yeah, the minutia of how people move the over prescriptive. Um, And it's, it's difficult. I don't really know where I've come down yet. I guess that's part of the value of being confused. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. The, uh, I had a bit of a follow-up to that question. Oh yeah, it actually brings us almost all the way back to the start of this discussion, which is the ideas that you put out publicly. And you know, you said somewhere in the middle there, you kind of have to meet clients where they are, like they have certain expectations and desires of you. And I guess for you, because you have done so much communicating about appropriate dosing of training stress and so on, you probably get clients who walk into you with an expectation that that is what your coaching will focus on as opposed to the people who do go around talking about, you know, technical minutiae and where your ribcage is and so on at a given time. Um, And perhaps there's value in that as well as being consistent in in expressing the things that you think are most important and rationalizing it. Do you agree? Yeah. Yeah. I think Eric Helms does a really good job of talking about that as a a type of selection bias. And it's good to, to keep that in mind, you know, but I've definitely got clients that, you know, when they send you videos, you can tell that they're looking for some technical feedback. And again, you need to, I think a well-rounded coach can meet a client where they're at. And uh, if you can't, then shore up that skill set and possibly bring in somebody else that has that expertise to, to ultimately help the client. Um, I know we've tried to do more of that lately, um, talking a lot with uh, uh, Dr. Megan Jones and uh, um, kind of leaning on her biomechanical expertise because, I, I mean, I have certain applied knowledge when it comes to, to powerlifting, but like you guys recognize my, my strength is probably more in like the training design and, and load management side of things. Uh, so if we're like getting really far in the weeds or, or we've got a, a situation that's fairly weird, uh, I'll want someone like her to have an opinion and weigh in on it. 
Well, again, I don't really know what I think about this, so I don't <laughs> want to come across too trite, but it's funny. You can say like you have certain applied knowledge in powerlifting, like you've had world record level lifts. So in some way or another, you figured out how to be an effective powerlifter without necessarily having to go into the weeds with that stuff. Sure. You know, and again, that says something for like the broad, like experiential knowledge base and skill set that you get from doing a lot of training. Sure. Um, you know, know, the the thing that kind of keeps me from going fully in the direction of uh, technical nihilism, uh, <laughs> I say that in jest, but uh, the thing that keeps me from going super hard in that direction is just the the idea that we are pushing bodies uh, with with a lot of training load, with a lot of training volume, um, and with any sort of mechanical system, uh, it's going to have some breaking point. And yeah, bodies can adapt and, uh, you know, bodies are also resilient and, and all those things, those are true, but there are limits to that. And when you really push it, you know, anyone, like if, if you were, uh, uh, a really sadistic person, you could prescribe anyone a training load that would hurt them. So it's possible uh, to to hurt someone with inappropriate training. Uh, and we find that sometimes we need to get pretty close to that in order to get an adaptive uh, training response, uh, you know, more at the extreme ends of the sport. So I think technique has to matter at some level, like it may not, it may not matter broadly speaking. It may not matter in the short term and it may not matter at, you know, some less than really pushing the limit scenario, but I just can't imagine that, you know, you could, you know, squat a certain way. Let's, let's say that you squat a certain way and it uh, places lots of uh, strain on uh, one specific tissue and then take strain off of uh, some other tissues as opposed to squatting with a more balanced overall technique. And then you just push that as hard as you can. Well, if a person gets hurt, you can, I would be willing to bet on what tissue is going to get hurt. You know, and I think that you could be predictive of that. Otherwise we'd see a lot of uh, torn pecs in the squat and we just don't see that, you know? So I mean, it, it has to matter on some level, but it, it's probably not the level of we need to be, you know, hyper attentive, uh, vigilant for any sort of technical deviation. And I think making a big deal about it or not is probably the biggest thing. You know? Yeah, the, the way that I look at technique and it's absolutely changed in the last few years, I used to be quite specific about how I wanted people to do things. And I had this very narrow bandwidth of what I considered to be acceptable technique. Mm. And over over time, that's only grown. And the things that I consider to be, you know, unacceptable are quite rare. And I think that kind of echoes what you were saying, Mike. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Okay, so final for mine, meta coaching question. In these discussions, you sort of, you do a really good job of expressing some uncertainty about your decision-making. You express you express your rationale and you've thought more deeply about these things than almost anybody else, I think, but you still express uncertainty. And I imagine that 
sometimes you do get athletes who come to you expecting clearer answers than you can give. And so mm-hmm. as a coach, how do you navigate discussions with athletes where you are trying to yeah, guide them through those uncertain times, particularly when they do expect clearer answers from you than you can give? Yeah, I think that's a, a leadership problem, to be honest. And that's a, there's a bit of a, a line to be walked between being truthful and saying, hey, I don't actually know, uh, but also expressing some confidence. And usually the thing that makes an athlete feel comfortable is not knowing that. It's not knowing the facts about what's going on right now. It's knowing it's feeling confident in a way forward, you know, that, um, say that, uh, you're bench pressing and you strain your pec. Well, why one question that an athlete may have is, well, why did this happen? And we don't really know. And I think you can be honest with, with most athletes. I, I would be honest in that situation that, you know, we don't really know. Here's some possible things. You know, when I looked at your video, I didn't see any sort of technical error. So possibly it's from this or possibly it's from that. We don't really know. But the important thing is that this is what we're going to do next. And here's some things that we're going to do to uh, help ensure that this doesn't happen again in the future. I think if you can do those things, then not really knowing why it happened is a bit less important. You know, I mean, if this becomes a thing that happens often, and your uh, uh, guidance isn't leading away from injury in that in that scenario, then they're going to become less and less confident in in the path that you lay out. Yeah, Alex actually set up his offices as a personal trainer right next to this physiotherapy clinic at one stage, and and ever since he's been walking around with bling hanging off his neck and. And broadly doing very well for himself, he bought a house at one stage. So I'm starting to think that might actually be the way forward. Yeah, hurt people. Mike prescribes um, for out and get a kickback. Right? That's exactly it. Um, look, I don't have any further questions for you, Alex. Do you? Um, I wanted to talk about the mentality around um, some trainees regarding the track R system, Mike. Um, and like you mentioned this as a, your example earlier with, you know, having some athletes who say, you know, Monday's my heavy squat day. That's when I do my heavy squats. Um, and for me, that provides me like a great value in knowing the direction of where yeah. my training is going. So do you think this reactive approach to a lifter's recovery could affect their mental readiness in some instances? Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it's funny. You guys pick up on a lot of this stuff that, uh, frankly, came as a bit of a surprise to me. Uh, so part of it is like, like I mentioned, like I'm designing a lot of these systems in part because I need the answer to it. You know, so it's at least partly selfish, you know, so it's fine for me because I get it and I understand it and I, and I built the damn thing. Um, but I, I do hear that uh, feedback or I did hear that feedback that, you know, you know, I'm feeling a little bit like my training that isn't having uh, direction lately. Uh, and a lot of the reason why I was getting some of that feedback is because there was less of a block structure to it. And that has been a correction I've made just honestly in the last few months, um, where it's like, you know, we do need to 
bring back a block structure and for lots of different reasons. One of the reasons is it, it helps to give athletes the feeling of a direction. You know, some people can just go in there and train and they do a pretty good job of it. But like even myself, like I feel like I do a really good job of that, but still, if you give me a date that I'm, I've got to be ready by this date, it, it changes uh, your mental approach to the training. So even the, the process of uh, picking a, a target date for a gym test or something like that uh, can be useful, you know, just to give people something to aim at. Look, I feel like this discussion, you've said a number of times might confuse people, but I personally have found it really valuable to hear some of how you meld those those softer skills of coaching and some of those more intuitive decisions with looking more holistically and objectively at data. And, you know, just like our last discussion about emerging strategies, I feel like those are broad concepts that could really help a lot of coaches. So thank you very much for the time. Your final job while you're here, Mike, is just let everybody know where they can contact you, where they can follow anything from RTS and anything else that's in the works from you. Sure. Um, Let's see, probably the best place to get in touch with me or with RTS more broadly is uh, via Instagram. Uh, We're most active there. Uh, We do a podcast ourselves. Uh, I do a weekly newsletter uh, with, you know, try to uh, say some useful things and uh, give people something that, yeah, something that they they can use. Um, Those are probably the primary places where we're active now. And then as always, we've got the... uh, training log on the website that if you go to reactive training systems.com and you log in, there's a free training log application and uh, it doesn't have the track R system built into it yet, but we'll hopefully get there at some point. Uh, but in the meantime, it does have a lot of tools built into it that are fairly unique and designed to help people make better training decisions. I think that's what a training log should do. Uh, so that's there and it's free for anybody who wants to use it. Cool. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm Will, P 2 I'm Alex, Alex Hayes on the score process. And we'll Alex insisted that I do this for you at some stage during the episode. So here is the crowd going wild. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> <laughs>